The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And today on the show, I will be talking to a Detroit hardcore legend, someone I've wanted to talk to for years, from the band Pitbull. Mikey Pitbull is on the show today. Uh, more on that in one second. But this is all going down because of a special screening that's happening this Sunday in Toronto at 7 p.m. at Innis Town Hall, one of my favorite places to watch a movie. I've seen a lot of great stuff there over the years. Of Dope, Hookers, and Pavement, the real and imagined history of Detroit Hardcore, a fantastic documentary. If you go back in this feed... You can hear an interview with Otto Bouge, who's going to be in attendance. I'm going to be interviewing Otto, talking to him about this, this film. We're, we're going to be doing a Q&A. It's going to be a lot of fun. This is all going down because it's brought to you by the fine folks at Emissions, Micro Forum Record Pressing, and Rain Hard Brewing. And uh, this is going to be a party. I'm very excited about this thing. It's free. There's also going to be... Uh, an opportunity to donate some food. They're, they're collecting for community fridges in Toronto, a great thing that supplies free food to people that need it all around the city of Toronto. So if you're in the area or, or, or can be in the area, come on out and hang out. Uh, you can get reserved tickets hitting up Detroit hardcore film dot R S P if I that's R S V P I F Y. Dot com, And, oh my gosh, this is going to be a lot of fun. I love watching hardcore movies with groups of people, or like punk documentaries, I should say, hardcore movies. Could go a lot of ways saying that. Uh, I love watching punk documentaries with groups of people in a theater like this. And uh, you got the director there too, Otto. Great guy. Legendary zine editor as well. Did sold out fanzine as well. So because of this special screening that's happening this Sunday... We are joined today on the show by actually kind of an ex-bandmate of Otto, as we talk about on this episode, Mikey Pitbull from the band Pitbull. He's a legend. He's come up on this show many, many times. So it's a big thrill for me to finally get to sit down and talk to him. Huge influence on me vocally. I, like these seven inches I was turned on to by Chris Callahan from Swarm, Sect, Cursed, all those bands. He was like, you got to hear this band. This band's unbelievable. So I grew up listening to this band. As long as I've been collecting records, I've been a Pitbull fan. But they remained a band steeped in mystery to me, and that all changes today. This is a, this is a great conversation. I'm excited for you to hear it. Unfortunately, Mikey can't join us. Originally, Mikey planned on being up here to hang out this weekend, but there'll be other surprises 
at that screening. Don't you worry. I'm working on some stuff. So check out this episode. Check out the episode with Otto, the director of the documentary. And uh, check out the interviews with John Brannon and Barry Hensler. I'm trying to think of other. Uh, there's lots of good Detroit ones in in the back catalog of this podcast here. Uh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Uh, a little bit of viewer discretion advised with this episode. <laughs> Some adult stories towards the end of it. I'll see you this Sunday, February 25th, in this town hall, 7 p.m., for free. Bring some food for the community fridges in Toronto and check out Dope Hookers and Pavement, the real and imagined history of Detroit hardcore. And if you can't be here, guess what? This thing has now dropped on Blu-ray. And I happen to be holding one in my hot little hands right now as we speak and this thing is gorgeous this is crazy it's comes with a giant booklet there's a bonus disc with outtakes and and other footage and yeah so get over to detroithardcoremovie.com and pick up this thing and while you're there pick up the sold out anthology that uh the zine that auto does that we, we talk about in this episode quite a bit of fantastic fanzine and, and a great kind of window into a period of Detroit that kind of comes after this documentary. And that's really the focus of this conversation you're about to hear. Uh, a great, a fantastic fanzine, like a classic fanzine, classic documentary, order yourself a copy, DetroitHardcoreMovie.com. Check this thing out. Sound like John Brandon right there. Uh, or check it out in person this Sunday. I'll see you there. And this is brought to you by our buddies at Emissions Records, Micro Forum Record Pressing, and Rain Hard Brewing. Oh, and there's also an after party, too, going down at the Transac. There's going to be punk and, uh, and dub being played by the record detective. It's going to be a wild Sunday night. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy Mikey Pitbull on Turned Out of Punk. Oh, before we, do you prefer Mike or Mikey? I call me Mikey. Most okay. people do. Okay, good. The people who call me Mike are a whole different set of people. Okay, good. Okay, well then I <laughs> want to be in the latter. Mikey right. it is. Uh, Mikey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, for sure. That's my pleasure. As I just told you off air, you're a huge influence on me vocally, and I I, I love Pitbull. I think Pitbull's one of the most underrated you know, hardcore bands of that era. So I'm got a lot to get to today with you. All right. Well, I got to start them off the way they all start off, which is how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? Um, well, shit. Um, so like around, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I was listening to ACDC, right? Stuff like that. And then, then I started to want to be able to talk to girls a little bit better. So I went through my little Duran Duran phase. Right. And, um, and, uh, my brother started bringing home some punk. I remember there was that dead Kennedy's 12 inch single of bleed for me. And, uh, was on the other side, life sentence. Right. So that kind of sparked the interest a little bit, but uh, 
what really tipped it was um, was uh, one of his friends left a cassette in my in uh, in uh, in my mom's old car, and on it was the Minor Threat singles, uh, Negative Approach tied down, and on the other side was uh, No Sleep Till Hammersmith, and that was it. Once I heard Ian screaming, fuck, 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 that was, it just had me hooked. Just the, all the whole, and the negative approach thing. I mean, I just never heard anything like it. Never heard anything that really spoke to the way that I felt at that moment, you know. So, yeah, that was it, really. That that one cassette kind of changed everything. Well, it's funny, because I think with the, the lyrical content of, especially the early Pitbull records, there's like this real misanthropic kind of anger that you nothing by negative approach is something that you know immediately connected me to pitbull right that was yeah that was obviously the number you know really the song that kind of that really sparked the way i felt right you know that was pretty much the song that based everything you know that really uh inspired most of what my feelings were so had you gone to any concerts prior to getting into punk and hardcore or any shows? No, you know, um, not really. Uh, my, uh, my mom wanted me to be raised as uh, a cultured individual, right? The thing that scared her the most is that I would someday be a, a shoeless hillbilly which is exactly what I wanted to be, right? So like when I was a child, rock and roll wasn't allowed in the house, period. I used to hide in the closet uh, and I had this little Marine band radio that you you could tune in stuff. And I remember being like six years old and hearing uh, Catman do, and I was like, wow, you know, that's that's what I wanna be, right? (laughs) Yeah. And, yeah, through that, it was just me pretending to be, you know, a singer of a rock and roll band. My earliest band was called Smoker, which was a Kiss ripoff, which was just me in the bathroom, in the bathtub with lipstick on my eyes. I had two stars over both eyes and I was Johnny Smoker, right? And I yeah. would sing my own like uh, Kiss themed songs, right? So that's kind of where it started is uh, just, you know, me not actually having any like real access to any rock. You know, I had to either go to my friend's house. Right. Or but it was not allowed in the house. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny you bring up Kiss because they come up time and time again as sort of a gateway band. And it's it's interesting because Kiss are like these He-Man type action figures rock stars cast down from space and it's almost like the complete antithesis of what negative approach and minor threat are where you know you just do it because you love it you don't have to be a rock star so it must have been quite a shock going from duran duran and kiss to na and minor threat it was uh yeah like it was an absolute uh sea change right it was i i completely changed as a person once really punk really entered my life right how much awareness did you have of like 
like bands like the Stooges or the MC5 or any of that kind of stuff? Because I know those records were out of print for a long time, but was there any sort of like, were kids in school talking about it or is it just sort of forgotten nope. history of that? No, it, you know, for even when I really got, you know, started getting into punk, those things were still kind of like, you know, I, I, you know, most of everything that I knew was from, it, they were handed down records that were handed down from a guy who went to our high school, right? Who decided that punk was bad for him. And he gave all his records to my buddy, Stefan, right? And through Stefan, he would like, when I first started getting into punk and we started hanging out, he started making tapes for me of all like, you know, I mean, it was everything from Radis to uh, Conflict to to Stiff Little Fingers to, I mean, you name it. It was a great record collection, and I had tapes of everything. You know, we started going to shows, and like I said, the first show was Seven Seconds uh, at uh, Greystone Hall in 1985, and it was, I was hooked, you know. It was like, this is this is just... You know, the, I was giddy coming back from it. You know, I was like, wow, this is something. This is something different. This is who I am, you know. This is what I relate to. I can't go back to, you know, New Moon on Monday and the reflex and all that shit. That was all dead, you know. And I just pretty much figured if the chicks are going to like me, they're going to like me for what I want to be and not for the shit that they listen to, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's hard to go to Hungry Like the Wolf once you've heard Rattus. <laughs> but that is that is an amazing record collection. The fact that you had exposure to Conflict, Stiff Little Fingers, and Rattus, because that's like, they're just like all different and kind of obscure, especially in the case of Rattus and, and Oh, know, yes. Oh, yeah. And then that too, that uh, all that conflict and all those real political, you know, politically motivated bands kind of, shape my politics too so what do you remember who opened for seven seconds at that graystone show oh for crying out loud it was a local band called forced anger um and uh oh geez i don't remember anybody else i find it interesting with detroit because right from proto-punk all the way up, you know, from to cold cock and, and that whole scene to negative approach and that whole scene to the mid eighties to you guys, there's, there's kind of consistently punk and hardcore from like the late sixties, proto-punk, I guess, originally all sure, the way sure. through. Yeah. Well, you know, this town will do that. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, uh, you know, I don't want to overdo the, uh, it's so tough here, but it really is. It's, you know, it's this kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of this hopeless town, you know, everybody's like, ah, shit, it's a dying town. Like the, the, the big thing was the last person to leave Detroit, turned the lights out, hmm. you know, and that kind of gives you this kind of, mm, this really kind of, um, unhappy view of the world right i guess that's a easy way of putting it and uh that'll come through that'll come through in the in the music you know and 
you know, not to romanticize it like you're saying, but at the same time, you've come up on this show a few times and, and Detroit's come up on this show a few times and just how it, real it was. Like this was a place where some some scenes bands have to act hard. Detroit, it seems like bands just had to be hard because of the nature of existing. And I mean, Detroit, Detroit. Sure, sure. Sure. And uh, and that's something, too. It's the 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 the. The acting hard and being hard. I don't think that, uh, you know, I know I was perceived that way, you know, and people wanted me to be meaner than I was, you know, and it was never supposed to be like that. All right. I was never, you know, I was more of a, you know, coming up, I was a posse kid, you know, all that youth of today and seven seconds and hope for everybody and let's all get along and shit. And, uh, and uh, and really, I didn't really ever want to be, you know, perceived as some kind of mean ass tough guy. That wasn't the point of anything, right? It's mm-hmm. like uh, you go and people are like, ah, oh, they're expecting me to be this this, you know, kind of violent mean dude, and I just was never that person. Yeah, I didn't mean to imply like the stories that have come up actually you always sound awesome in them, but like there's uh, I think Tony Erba from face value told a story about playing with you guys. And at the end of the night, you know, they're in, it's, it's Detroit, right? Like it's, it's right. Yeah. It's, it's a hard area. And you just were like, okay, I'm going home and just walked home. Like, it's not, I don't mean hard as in being a bully or a tough guy, but I mean, like the reality is that's your environment. Sure. I mean, kind of, had an advantage over most people is where I'm kind of bigger than anybody's willing to take a shot on in the first place. <laughs> so I was able to just walk home and who's going to fuck with me, you know, nobody, yeah. you know, and then even when they would fuck with me, what am I going to do? Right. I'm going to diffuse a situation. I'm not going to fucking, you know, I don't need to fight anybody. I don't need to stand up for myself in that manner. You know, I, I just consider the source. You want to punk me out? Fine. I'm a pussy. Whatever floats your boat. It's not worth me, you know, bruising my knuckles on your stupid chin for, you know. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. What were some of the bands around that time when you first started getting into it? Like, you know, obviously Youth of the Day and Seven Seconds come through. Actually, there's an infamous Youth of the Day show that's come up on this podcast a few times where Boom and the Legion of Doom open and, <laughs> and scarred Youth of the Day for life. Walter is still shaken up by that show. Oh, it was horrifying. I was <laughs> so disgusted. Yeah, they apparently, uh, Boom, they were from Flint, I think, right? And uh, Flint, Michigan. And on their way, down to the show, they had hit a deer. So they scooped up the carcass and brought it with them and just tore it apart on stage, throwing guts out into the audience, dancing around with the head of the deer. It was revolting, right? I saw like, you know, Ray and they were all so bummed and Kevin, because it was it was uh, seven seconds in Youth of Today oh, was the show. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, uh, it was, it was, I mean, I hated them from that moment on, right. Blooming a legion of doom. Like it was just like, oh, geez, I couldn't believe that. You know, I was, uh, I don't mind. I, I understand why Walt was traumatized because, 
you know, even like looking back at it now, it's kind of fun and it's a good story. But at the moment, it was vile. You know, I mean, there was guts all over that dance floor. At the end of the night, Boom was so fucked up, he was found passed out in the dumpster behind the club. (laughs) Right? Oh, my God. Yeah, so... Uh, it's you know the one thing you can't really appreciate because there's a video i think of that show now on on youtube that i found uh, i don't think the video probably gives you the sense of the smell that must have had in a sweaty room of of people oh yeah the waft of guts right it was yeah it was yeah it was a memory i wouldn't trade though at this point you know i was happening you know i was revolted but looking back at it we're all laughing and smiling now. It's like, eh, how much reverence do you need to give a dead vessel anyway, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like they killed the deer on stage. That would that would be something at this point where I'd still be upset about, but shit, fuck. I hope when I die, I get the same kind of love, right? <laughs> May we all be torn apart at a show by Boom and the yeah. Legion of Doom. That would be that would be the shit right there. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely. And the funny part about that is then the next time seven seconds came through, right? Uh, there was a bunch of people that came with hot dogs and just were chucking them at seven seconds the whole show. Right? Because they were so bummed out about it. They had and I remember, you know, the night that it happened, they were really bummed and they said a lot of shit about it on stage. So, yeah, some months later when they came back, they got a hot dog treatment. It was like, God, <laughs> oh, jeez, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, it feels like that's the town that, you know what, just it's going to get worse if you bring it up on stage. Yeah, and it did. And it did. I think the I think the hot dog incident might have been a little uglier to me, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, it was really, you know, uh, how much more disrespectful could you get, right? It's it's interesting how punk has that sort of right from the get go spitting on your heroes type thing. Sure, uh, but it's 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 fascinating when you look at these bands that got more political. Start talking about you know animal rights, veganism, vegetarianism how they would get met with with animal guts being thrown at them or earth crisis. Um, there's two stories of them getting uh, yogurt hurled at them at different shows huh. by people in the crowd. Yeah. Uh, you know, people don't like to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't like to be told that you're wrong. And when punks, you know, they're going to show up and they're going to let you have it. You know, there was an incident. It was kind of the opposite. When uh, we were on, uh, we were, it was the tour for casualty when we were in Europe. And at that point, Rich White, guitar guitarist, was, uh, he had a guitar strap that said, meat is neat on it, right? And after the show, our uh, dressing room was invaded by militant vegans who threatened to kill us right and uh yeah and then i stood up and i kind of like asked them to leave and they quickly left (laughs) 
but it's still, it's just like, you know, you, you know, when people, especially punks, they, they, they get this idea that, you know, that they have to say something, that they have to, you know, they have to stand up for what they, you know, what they, uh, what they feel, I guess. Right. Well, and it, this is something that comes up on the show a lot. So I, I sound like a broken record bringing it up, but punk, and and hardcore, I guess, more specifically, is almost like a religion for some people. Where oh yeah, no, absolutely. And and like you were saying, it provided you get in, in these anarcho bands gave you a political awakening. And I feel like uh, so much of us get our moral code, get our identity in a weird way—not identity, but political identity at least—from this music. And there's like sort of a a fanatical adherence in the same way religion has fanatical adherence from people. Oh yeah, absolutely, I agree with that a band that would have disturbed me like probably that boom in the legion of doom show disturbed walter or right band that already has disturbed me is slaughterhouse that slaughterhouse seven inch is the most disturbing record cover i've ever seen in my life they were another band on depression records Did you ever run into them at all now, slaughterhouse were really interesting i mean I, I i i didn't really i wasn't prepared for them musically yet or what they were doing musically right because i needed hardcore Mm -hmm. Right. I needed hardcore, but they were not, they were very, mm, but there was the, the, the stage show, the, the, the theatric that went around. He had an aborted fetus in a jar that would keep on stage. Right. And there was, uh, they would run a slideshow of all kind of horrific imagery while they were playing. And absolutely, I don't remember the music at all, but I remember those, hor those that horrible imagery and that fetus in a jar he had up on stage. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, no, they were, yeah, they were. I think that's who Boom and the Legion of Doom was trying to impress, <laughs> right? I think they were trying to impress Slaughterhouse. But yeah, that's funny. I haven't thought about Slaughterhouse in years. That's just... But yeah, they were they were ghastly. They were spooky. And, and his slaughter and I think his name was Bob. What a great guy though, you know. I recall talking to him off stage and you know, like just you wouldn't expect that kind of stuff out of a guy like that. It's what always evil the quiet ones in the heart of men, right? Yeah, it's always the quiet ones you gotta worry about. <laughs> the uh it's it booming the Legion of Doom. It's interesting because that guy Smelly Mustafa, who I think played guitar <laughs> in the band, a great name, a great name. Uh, uh, he went on it. They later formed that band Plainfield and kind of have like a weird connection with the Melvins. Dale Crover played drums in Plainfield too, for a oh, hobby. Yeah, I did not know that. Well, specifically like 1990 in Detroit, you've got the Trash Brats, you've got Boom and the Legion of Doom, you've got yourselves, you've got. It, tons of other bands, feisty cadavers, like all sorts of bands that have sort of very distinct interpretations of what punk is or, or Sonic, certainly different versions of what punk is, but even like ideologically, like there's no way I, I could imagine you putting on a disturbing image slideshow during a Pitbull set. Yeah. I always kind of wanted to have, uh, one of the ideas was, uh, dark bite victims, right? Slides, you know, something, right? Like, like children that were mauled by dogs, right? Something, but you know, it was just, uh, just a whimsical idea, but you know, really it was, uh, 
Yeah, so I guess that is was in my heart too, right? I, re- I really wanted to kind of, you know, uh, always like, you know, get a rise out of somebody, mm-hmm. right? As you're saying, it's a dark town. It's going to produce some dark bands. Mm-hmm. So did the Depression Records, would you guys play with those types of bands? Or is that mm-hmm. kind of a Depression Records and all those like uh, Legion of Doom and Twitch and all those types of bands? Uh, you know, we found it. You know, uh, kind of really, it wasn't easy to get shows for us right immediately. So we didn't even really try Detroit, right? All our first shows were out of town. You know, Toledo, we went to New York. Uh, really, I can't remember. But by the time we really uh, played Detroit, we were already established and playing. And I think that finally kind of like uh made people a little mo- bit more uh conscious of us like like willing to come out because you know if you're a local band nobody really gives a shit right this is a town where you know local bands you know detroit bands have a hard time doing anything but if aerosmith comes in a town they'll sell out five nights you know, so it's just, and at the time too, when we were coming up, you know, the good places to play was, you know, the Greystone Hall, which was, you know, my favorite place. You know, that went down the tubes. And most of the DIY, you know, nobody was really doing. We had to go to uh, Blondie's, you know, the heavy metal bar and play Sunday matinees because they didn't really want to put us on any shows, right? We were getting, it was a lot of competition, right? There was a lot of other bands that would like, you know, talk shit about you, talk to, you know. And, uh, you know, we created a little following and finally, you know, kind of broke through like, uh, we always wanted to get on these good bills, like you know, all the top bands coming through. It's like trying, trying to weasel our way on, and and it wasn't working. And um, finally, there was uh, the Clutch Carlos management put on a the Punk Fest, the Midwest Punk Fest. Uh, up until then, we were you know doing some shows at Blondie's and trying to get on gigs and doing the matinees and everything. And we played that punk fest and um, there were probably about 15 bands on there, but the almighty lumberjacks of death was the headliner. Right. And they were the ones in town that were getting all the big, you know, GBH, ALD, you know, any big bands coming through ALD was the opener automatically. Right. And uh, that was our big rival. And um, and uh, once that punk fest happened, we ended up playing right before ALD, but somehow they only gave us 15 minutes to play, right? And uh, that was their big mistake because uh, I got to expend all the energy that I wouldn't have normally done in that, you know, I came out picked up that microphone stand and smashed it across that fucking stage and just let it all hang out. And that was it for ALD after that. Like, 
from then on out, like, like they were just putting us on the big shows without us even knowing. I recall one time, hey, got that bad religion show. It's like, what? Yeah, it's in the paper. They didn't even call us. They just put us on the bill. You know, at that point, it was just undeniable, right? It's like, you know. Going so, back yeah. going back to 85, when you go to that first uh, seven second shows, who were some of the local bands around then that you were into? Yeah, see, I really wasn't that aware of many bands yet, right? But forced anger was the one that, you know, that, oh, heresy. Okay. Like that was, I think that was my second show was heresy. And there was another band called the bats, but heresy, they had the tall hair. They had the, you know, the spikes and the, and all the leather going, but they were badasses. That was, you know, they were, uh, I mean, you'll see it in the hardcore movie, the Kings, right? Like they, the Sleestack brothers, Randy. You know, uh, it was, uh, so heresy was a good one. Um, what else was I thinking about? You know, a lot of my memory has faded over the years, right? Were you, were you a fan of Just Born at all? Oh, yeah. Tony Romeo, for sure. He who, who, uh, uh, ended up with the Trash Brats. Just mm-hmm. Born, we saw them a few times. And, you know, I always had a... a a nice relationship with Tony. Tony's a real good cat. Came from kind of the same kind of, he was a St. Florian's boy. I was a Immaculate Conception boy. So we're both Hamtramck, you know, Eastern European kids, right? You got that connection right of the gate. Yeah. So just born. Yeah. Um, who else? A lot of, you know, a lot of those, you know, they just didn't uh, didn't um, satisfy the hardcore that I was looking for. You know, the Detroit at that time, a lot of punk bands, not so many hardcore, right? Not that, not, oh, excuse me. <clears throat> weren't tickling my fancy for the for the power that I was looking for, you know, or the statement with the kind of uh, the ideology I was looking for. A lot of Detroit punk was, oh, let's get fucked up, you know, drink beer, right, and that kind of shit. And, you know, I was flirting with trying to be straight edge, right, which I was not straight edge, but uh, a lot of my heroes at the moment were. <laughs> so I was trying but I kind of like to drink a little more than I wanted to be straight edge. Right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I tell you one of the bands that really changed the way I was looking at music was the hyenas. You know, first time I saw laughing hyenas, I just missed, you know, negative approach by what, two years. Mm-hmm. Right. Which back then felt like 20 years. Right. Yeah. Now you look back at it. It's like, it's missing, you know, the, but that first night I saw Brandon, right? They, uh, you know, they were hanging out in the in the bathroom, fucking uh, playing craps. <laughs> and then they, I was like, oh, man, that's John Brandon. And I was kind of like intimidated. I mean, you know, uh, I didn't even want to approach him or say anything. He was bigger than life at that moment. And when they took the stage, 
it was like right at the at the at the edge of where the pit would be, right up but at the front of it. And he took to the stage and started singing, and I thought he was staring at me. I thought he wanted to kill me. So I moved to the side, and I thought he was looking at me. Everywhere I went, his eyes followed me, and I thought I had done something to displease him. I was literally, like, freaked out. And I talked to him about it. It was like later, I says, yeah, no, uh, I Oh, not, I didn't even know. I can't even see past. <laughs> but yeah, but that really kind of like, wow, this is not hardcore. Man, I really like this. You know, it was, it was, it was a show. It was a show. It was beyond just the music. It was the four of them and just the way they looked and played their instruments and they were spooky. Yeah, spooky is a good way to put them. Hundred percent, because I feel like I feel like John's like kind of like the Frank Sinatra of aggressive vocals, where he just gets <laughs> his voice gets better. Like I love Negro Approach, one of my favorite bands of all time, but I think his voice is better in Hyenas, and I think it's even better now in Easy Action. Like he gets more control of that thing, and still scares the shit out of me when he's singing on stage. Oh no, that's for sure. Like, and that's. uh a vocal style like that too you know it takes time to rip it in and to get it to work like you want to and that was always um it was always something earlier especially on the records that i wish i would have done differently because i used to try to save my voice and that was the absolute wrong thing to do you need to rip the fuck out of it for it to be able to work like you want to and i didn't understand that until after that first big tour I did, like I, I was embarking on this, you know, long tour and I was scared that I would only get to like about day four and that would be it. Right. And it just be to, the, the throat just got stronger and I was able to do whatever I wanted to after that. It, it's interesting. You talked about, uh, you know, not identifying with the punk stuff that was happening in Detroit and being much more interested in the hardcore. Cause that's exactly what, uh, Brandon said when he was on the show, like he didn't like any of that early Detroit punk, you know, capital R rock stuff. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't a fan of any of those bands. <laughs> and it's, it's almost like Detroit kind of goes in these sort of like ebbs and flows with the punk and then the hardcore comes in and then the punk kind of comes back. And then, you know, you guys come in and bring the hardcore back and Pitbull to me really defines what I think of as Detroit hardcore. Certainly after a certain point, like that sound that you guys find, like, that earth mover and, and um, cold as life, like all these bands, I think afterwards, like that's a, a sound, but to me, that pitball, that first records kind of where that sound first comes from. Yeah, sure. And it was pretty much like, uh, you know, you don't identify with what's going on. So you do what, you know, you do what you want, you know, instead of trying to, be part of what everybody else going on. No, we wanted to to do hardcore. We wanted we wanted it to be like it was in other towns. You know, we wanted a good hardcore scene, and uh, you know that's what. Uh, yeah, I just did what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to wanted to sing in a hardcore band, so that's what I did. Right. 
Absolutely. So how long is it after the band forms that I've given up is recorded? Okay, so the first lineup of of Pitbull actually was nothing like what it ended up being. The first lineup was actually Otto, who was the filmmaker of uh, of uh, Joe Puckers and Pavement, right? You know, we used to yeah. hang, hang out. I used to, you know, help him out with the zine a little bit, sold out, but um, help out, you know. That guy was... Just, Pretty much, he was fucking guy's a genius. Period. He just did whatever he and he was actually got guy who named the band. He came up with the band Pitbull. Up until then, I wanted my band to be called Seeing Red. Right? He's like, Nah, Mikey, that's too derivative. Like, you know, how about Pitbull? I was like, Yeah. So the original Pitbull was more. It was rough. It was American Oi. It was, you know, I was a big Slapshot fan. We were all big Slapshot fans at that time. We all wanted to, you know, do it that way, right? And uh, first show was actually, uh, I, I put on a New Year's Eve party show with Econo Christ and Sobering Consequences. And, um, and then we played, like, probably about seven songs. And it was me, Otto, it was a guy, Dan Silverstein, and uh, John, who I can't remember his last name at all. They were from a local band called Attack and Decay, who became intact. They kept on changing their name. I don't think they were ever happy with the name. but I think the Attack and Decay record eventually got released, right? Or there's like a 7-inch from the 90s? Maybe it's a different band. I don't know. I'm not really sure. I I could ask Dan about that, but uh, I just uh, recently have started running into him again after about 20 years of not seeing the guy. So so I will ask him if that was his bit, but I don't I don't think it was because I think once they gave up on the name Attack and Decay, you know, like I said, they kept on changing their name. Okay. But yeah, I grabbed, you know, two of the guys from that band and Otto and me and we played a little bit, but it was nobody's priority other than mine. Um, and uh, another local band, Just Cause, were playing, and they were pretty hot. They were pretty good. Uh, and they had that, you know, the good hardcore sound, and they had that positive thing going and everything. Actually, uh, um, so they wanted to... Um, we wanted to kick out their singer, and they wanted me to join Just Cause. And uh, I pretty much said, uh, why don't you break up and join Pitbull? And that's where we went from there. We had a, left a couple of the old Just Cause songs and just started writing everything new. And it became different. Like I said, I'm not by any ways a musician, right? I'm just an entertainer. I'm just a guy who's willing to get up in front of people and scream and yell. And, and but my musical talent is, you know, you know, preach, brother, like, preach. I'm the same way. I you know really <laughs> not really there. Yeah. So I'm kind of, you know, always at the, at the, um, at the will of other people's musical ideas. You know, of course, you know, if I didn't like something, I would not do it, right? So, 
you know, I was good at arranging parts and arranging things and and writing, you know, getting the song finished, right? I guess that would almost be like what you say a producer would do, right? So I feel like that's a hardcore vocalist thing in, in you know, like that's like unique to hardcore in terms of a vocalist is that fact that like you don't necessarily need that musical grounding to do this thing. And so you wind up functioning much more as, like you're saying, a producer than except for the lyrics of course but like in the vocal arrangements but like when it comes to the music you're like no that doesn't work that works rather than actually you know writing it i think that's an important thing too because it'll it makes the music more accessible to non-musicians because mm -hmm. you get somebody who really who's who's got some musical talent and he wants to show it off and I'm telling you, man, Dream Theater and shit like that bores the fuck out of me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yes. I want a good song. I don't care about how good the music is. Yeah. I don't care about how technical and how good. And ooh, ooh, ooh. I don't give a shit about that. If the song isn't a good song, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, and that was one of the things, especially with these young guys trying to prove themselves on how good a musicians are. They are. It was like. You know, nobody really fucking cares other than other musicians and you know, other musicians don't really buy too many records or go to fucking, you know, yeah. you know, they're not, they, they, you know, they don't care about your musicianship. So I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to say it's not a blanket statement, but nevertheless, I wanted to be accessible. I wanted to reach people. Right. Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so you guys record I've Given Up, and you, you self-release it, right? Fisticuff Records is your, your label. Yeah, yeah, I did that. My mom loaned me some money, you know, and I did just did that all. And there's weirdly two pressings, right? Like there's a second press you guys never did covers for that initial eventually reissued? Yeah, so uh, it was uh, exactly, it was one pressing of a thousand where the where the center label was black with silver, and then the second pressing was silver with the black label. And, um, yeah, we ended up, yeah, I ended up just selling those to initial, and they used that to start their record label with. Mm -hmm. Which so, it winds up being a hugely important record label as well on in its own right. Yeah, yeah, those guys were, you know, Dennis Hempstall was a good guy, man. It's, that's that's a guy that everybody misses. And uh, I think Andy Rich is down there in Las Vegas working the casinos. So, Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Did you record 1990 at the same time? Because they, they come out very, uh, very much back-to-back. -back. No, no. There was, that was a uh, different lineup as well. Oh. Uh, the... Uh, I've given up. Don't make me was uh, Matt Cross on drums. Matt Cross, who uh, went on to play in Orange Nine Millimeter. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Um, and uh, uh, 1990 was uh, Joe Starr on drums now. Hmm. So, yeah, it was kind of a whole different feel with Joe on drums, you know. He, yeah, had, he, brought, really different. he brought the uh, the double bass to Pitbull, right? Yeah. And uh, on top of it, not just a double kick, but two separate kick drums, right? Where, God damn it, fuck Joe, just get the goddamn double kick. I don't want to, you know. But then again, mind you, as a singer, I would not carry equipment. I did not ever want to see anybody see me carrying a fucking kick drum and like, ha, oh, look, he's just a roadie, right? I had to maintain that star status of a lead vocalist, right? You can't be carrying around, you know, but nevertheless, everywhere we went, carrying them two goddamn kick drums, you know, there'd be a little more room in the back of the truck if there was one less kick drum. It, it, yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. It's like you're speaking my thoughts. It's like uh, in professional wrestling, the wrestlers are like, never let them see you out of your gimmick. Before oh yeah, absolutely. I always believed that, and my guys they were always so bummed out about it. And I just, you know, hey, if that base cabinet was mine, I might grab a hold of it, but it's not. Yes, right? I've got all my equipment right here. I got my microphone. We have our egos. They're the heaviest piece of gear that there is. You need an ego if you're going to be a singer. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be in the front of the band, if you don't have an ego, it shows through. If you can't stand there confident, you know, and 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 rule that state. I mean, the guy who I saw that when I saw him, that's like that's who I want to be like was Armand when he was in Rest in Pieces. We opened for them at. Uh, it was not the Hawker Day at CB's, but like. Two weeks later, they had that same show in Long Island, right? It was Rest in Pieces, Wrecking Crew, Token Entry, and and we opened that show. And when I seen Armin strutting on that stage, and just, he had, man, he had, like I said, that's who I was trying to be like on stage was Armin. Mm-hmm. I was actually listening when I was listening to your records today, I was trying to place the influences on your vocals is because you have like such a unique sing side sing songy kind of style to it. Like obviously a harsh vocal, but like, is it, is it from like HR or where's that kind of influence on the way you approached it coming from? Oh, geez. Yeah, no, I, I like, yeah, I wanted, I, I, I just wanted to sing, right? It was more than just screaming. It was, I wasn't monotone. I truthfully, I don't know where it came from. I mean, it came from Bob Seger, mm. right? Because, yeah. like I said, that cat man do when I heard that, I, he was screaming, but he was singing. And that's kind of, you know, and again, ACDC was it still, you know, geez, I, you know, Bon Scott, maybe I wasn't, you know, singing like him but i was still or brian johnson too it's like those were the guys who i was kind of trying to just at least that's where i think it may have came from right you know um then ian too right just 
and John, right? All those guys, like, that's who I would think that I got my influences from. But, but yeah, I needed the melody too. I needed there to be some, get down, boy. You can't, no, you can't come up right now. Oh, the dog's here. Oh, look at that baby. <laughs> okay, no, you get down. Oh, sorry. I don't know even why, why he thinks he could come up here. He thinks he's a lap dog. A little big for a lap dog. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's a good boy. It, it's also interesting that you guys started out kind of with a more oi sound. Did you guys record it all during that period? No, no. No, it was like I says, it was it was nobody's uh, main deal other than, you know, it was just me who really wanted to do it. You know, the other guys kind of did it like auto kind of, you know, he had his own things going. He had his own uh, his own band. Um, yeah. Why am I blanking on his band name now? Oh, I, I remember the, the first time I saw him, first time I met him, they were actually opening um, for the youth of today's seven second show. And their band was called Youngblood at the time. <laughs> young blood and he really auto oh, we did not get that name from the movie right the rob Lowe hockey movie yeah no that wasn't and uh we're all standing around talking to youth to today and his guitar player uh auto's guitar player at that moment says to ray yeah we got that name from the from the hockey movie <laughs> <laughs> so Otto was just like, God damn you, God damn you. Right. So it was young blood, and then it was something else. It was but he had the same thing where the band was was the the, the fanzine was more what 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 was driving what was really his big project. You know, I think the bands uh, were always kind of like you know, something he was kind of trying to do, but not putting a, a complete effort into it, maybe. Mm. You know, at least that's what I see, right? Well, so, so that's so that's on another level, too, in terms of, like, how slick and perfect. I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean, like, how professional it is. Oh, man, he got so much shit for that, too. Oh, man, they used to, like, oh, you, you know, you're just a magazine and blah, blah, blah. And, oh, you're, 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 uh, you're treading in a sea of, 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 of what was the quote of generis ah man they just came at him from so many angles like so many people were just so mad about how good the fanzine looked and how and how like uh full page ads well from the big record well that's a good thing because it means that we can actually afford to do this right to put this fanzine out right and uh yeah, it was ridiculous. It really was. And then when he finished it, when he when he said goodbye, all those people came out of the woodwork. Oh, why are you leaving? Oh, it was so good. Oh, we love you, Otto. Oh, you guys, you should have shut the fuck up back then, right? Yeah, no one appreciates things when they're around. They need they need to miss it. Ah, and there's so many people in punk and, and everywhere just trying to tear you down once you start getting a little bit of, you know, once you start getting, 
when Bad Brains came through on that I Against I tour, like, ah, sellouts, oh, you suckers. It's like, how do they sell out? Just because they grew a little bit musically? They're still on SST. You know, I'm sure they, <laughs> I can't imagine SST really paying the bands any better than anybody else was, right? Yeah. yeah I, know. I feel I feel like that's a lot of what draws people to punk is like sort of an insecurity and and um it, it winds up becoming like a burden for people and certainly when you're in because they become people become so attached to a certain period of your band or a certain record of your band and then when you change or do something different it becomes a, a personal assault on them or they take it as um, a personal assault yeah i guess i kind of get that too because like you know shit like uh like, if you want to change that drastically, like, how the fuck was SSD still SSD when they were rocking? You know, it just wasn't SSD, right? And Or or how about this? Or, or show up at tracks to go see Discharge, and they're playing Grave New World. Like, what the fuck was that? It's not Discharge. You know, we were fucked. I've never seen anybody get spit at more in my life. I mean, they it was a shower of spit from the second they went on until they finally decided to exit the stage. You know, yeah. so I kind of get that, you know, you kind of, you know, I mean, at some point you got to realize, you know, as like even what we were doing like later, it just, you know, the casualty wasn't quite Pitbull anymore. It was something different. You know, it started changing, and uh, and we got that too. You know, people were like, "Ah, oh, it's not what it used to be." And I was like, "Yeah, I know, right?" But it's more disingenuous. I feel like if you had kept trying to make the same record over and over again, even though you were changing. Yeah, I mean, you know what happened with us is, uh, you know, Pete Cerati, our guitarist, right. He got MS, and uh, and it was pretty much over for him with the band, right? And taking away his writing influence is, you know, is why it is is what changed the band. It, he was no longer there to write. He was no longer there to to put his two cents and to keep that, you know, like the first album was, right? I think we're you know bound to change anyway, but taking him out of the factor really allowed that change to happen a lot uh, a lot more you know dramatically right was casualty recorded with uh, mikey clark too? yes yes how did you start working with him because he's a, a a hugely legendary producer and engineer certainly for you know horrorcore and, and detroit rap so um basically as we just walked into a studio it was uh there's a studio in town called The Disc and also Sidestick, right? Two studios in one building, right? Two different, whole different, two whole different rooms. So we walked in and we booked some time for side, and he happened to be working there, and that was it, right? Okay, we'll use you. And he's like asking us, like, ah, what kind of music are you into? And I'm trying to like, ah, yeah, like Eric Clapton. I like blah blah blah. It's just 
like what, like minor threat. I was like, I didn't expect, you know, just, a, you know, average studio guy to, to, to really know anything about hardcore. So yeah, we, uh, did that first one with them. We did the second one with them. We did the album with them. We did, we recorded casualty with him. Um, but we got him so fucking high. All we did was smoke weed the whole time. <laughs> and it just sounded terrible. Right? Like the end product was like terrible. And it like I says, it all we did was just kept on joint after joint, smoking weed. And we ended up taking the uh the tapes to uh, Rich White, our uh, lead guitarist, uh, his uncle's studio in Virginia Beach. And his uncle was Stacy Hayden, who uh, he has, um, he was the producer of Sheriff. You know that song? Baby, yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was the producer of that. He was also David Bowie's stage uh, guitar player. You'll actually see Stacy in, um, he appeared on Saturday Night Live with David Bowie doing that song, The, the Man Who Sold the World. That's amazing. I had no idea. Yeah. So, so he took that off to be mixed over there and kind of fixed it up as good as he could. But there was... Oh, there were, you know, like, there were drum tracks that, like, had just static on them from, like, uh, microphones that weren't plugged in properly, like, things cutting out, like, yeah, so don't get your engineer stoned while you're recording <laughs> your album. It's just not a good idea. I guess also Michigan's always had like a really strong cannabis scene um, going all the way back to the 60s. Yeah, yeah. You know, once I, uh, hey, once, once I found weed, it was, uh, yeah, the alcohol started dropping out, right? Preach. Just, yeah. Preach. I feel the same. And, and I've been, yeah, I've been in love with it ever since. And yeah. nothing's changed. Yeah. 420 core. It's good to know Pipple's 420 core. <laughs> yeah, I recall like, you know, we used to call ourselves Pot Bowl and <laughs> instead of like, you know, the big X, but it was crossed joints, right? That was uh, uh, a lot of graffiti I left a around Europe, right? Pot Bowl. <laughs> That's awesome. I love the sound of those first. Well, that explains why Casualty, I guess, also sonically sounds so different. But those first three recordings that you did with him are just phenomenal. Like, it's such a a cool approach. And he hadn't really done, as far as I can see, any sort of rock or, or punk records prior to that in terms of producing or engineering. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I really wish we would have kept it simpler, you know, and stayed at the at – the, like I said, Casualty, we went to, like, one of the better studios in town and – like just we didn't need that shit, right? Mm. But like you, you, you start getting better, and you think you need things that you don't, right? We just would have been much better off just doing things the way we were. But 
So if you you start getting better at your instruments and everybody thinks that uh, they got to show off a little bit more, right? And want to get a slicker production. Well, you know, you got to know what you're doing to get that slicker production. And not to say that Mike didn't know what he was doing, but maybe that those couple of nights he did not because he was too (laughs) fucking high. Uh, Do you guys have any interactions with like Kid Rock, Ashim, or uh, ICP or any of those groups? No. No. It's weird because it is like, it's interesting how that world's also popping off at the same time. Like it's a, uh, it's the a big closest, city. The closest we ever came to ICP was playing at the same club where they did a matinee show and we came in and did an evening show. So as their fans were leaving, ours were coming in. Mm-hmm. So, but that was the closest. I mean, there was no, no real, any, I didn't know those people at all. So. It's uh, I remember when Cold as Life was on. Um, there was a, a conversation about how they opened or ICP was supposed to open for them and then it's tried to headline afterwards. And so it feels like the two worlds wouldn't have mixed too well, hardcore and juggalo. I don't think Cold as Life's uh, world mixes well with anybody, yeah. Right? I mean, they were seen, they, they were like kind of wanted to be at odds with everybody it was really kind of you know their thing to like you know colder than you crew and you know uh you know i had my odds with ron beauty several times right like when he was drunk Mm. right when he was sober he was a fine guy to deal with he was fine you know i liked him kind of good but when he was drunk, he'd come after anybody and everybody. Right? It just—it was just a blind rage coming out of that guy. It, so. it, it does feel, um, you know, once again, looking from very much the outside, that there was a there's a, like an interesting parallel. The fact that both you your bands kind of start with doing sort of an oi thing, and then them, I guess, a little bit later than you guys, but eventually find this sort of Detroit hardcore sound. Sure, sure. Like, there must have been a big oi scene at that point, too. I guess Almighty Lumberjacks and all those bands as well. Um, I didn't think that ALD was an oi band, right? I think mm-hmm. that's something that they ended up saying that they became, right? But it, at the beginning, it was just a, a drink beer punk band, right? You know, that's what I thought of them. And, and truthfully, when they were, uh, you know, back in the day, I didn't think much of them. You know, I, I, I really never liked the big dog, right? Never, never had any kind of love for that guy. Uh, like I says, we were kind of rivals. And I, I kind of felt like they were trying to keep us down. You know, and uh, and mind you, we're assholes. <laughs> You know, it's, I mean, maybe I'm a pretty nice guy, but uh, but I don't show it, you know, <laughs> and I'm not really that good in social situations. I'm good on stage. I'm not good in the crowd. You know, like when you earlier you says in, uh, uh, about that face value show and I th- that I just went home because I just don't know how to hang out after the show. I don't know how to, you know, work the crowd and 
and hang out and 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 be that guy. So people like thought, oh, he's a fucking dick. You know, I'm not a dick. I just not comfortable hanging out. You know, I'm I'm much better on stage than in the crowd. You know, so that kind of didn't work in my favor with other people. You know, and then you talk about my bass player, who you know. <clears throat> <clears throat> you're not going to find very many people in this world that like that guy, you know, and he would not, you know, no, he'd say what he wanted to say. Mm. And, you know, people would hear it and uh, they did not, did not like what was coming out of his mouth, you know, and the same thing with all of us. We all felt like, we deserve more than we're getting from this town, you know? And I think the better thing would have been to just shut up about it. And instead of running our mouths, like we did. I, I've, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because like, I think that in retrospect, you kind of see that, but I think that's also like, you're saying you need that ego. You need to run your mouth. You need to be the, the band in order to survive because there's other bands around you that are, are acting that way. Like it, not yeah, to make it seem sure. like you have to be an asshole, but like you, you do kind of have to be your own biggest cheerleader in a way and, and do need to kind of like answer the, the criticisms. Yeah. But there's a good tactful way of doing that too, rather than just like, Oh, them guys fucking suck. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, you may think that, right. But, Maybe there's a better way. Uh, like I said, we're kids. We're dumb. Was Force Majeure like a completely different scene then with with those bands? I, I, I Like I said, I think we were just, we were in our own, own little world. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we always, you know, we'd go out of town and, uh, and we were something else, you know, like, we come back and all these people kind of we had the crowd that loved us and a lot of people who did not. Right. And it was either both jealousy and also hearing, you know, the kind of shit we would talk about them. Right. And then uh so yeah, like uh yeah, it was like I said, there was a punk scene and then there was a hardcore scene. And we were in the hardcore scene and like the like I think all those other bands, like it was just kind of a whole different thing. Well one band that I think you probably did have some connection with because I know Ron uh oh, sorry, Rob Sims sings on backups on the LP is relapse. Yeah. Would would you guys have played with them a lot or oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, Rob Sims, um, the first time uh, I met him was uh, we were going to start a band. It was Rob Sims and uh, Chris Rettens, who was the singer of Just Cause. But that was before Just Cause. This was just met this guy at a show and was like, yeah, let's start a band. I showed up at their house and. Chris was on bass and Rob was on guitar. I can't remember who the drummer was. And they started playing and um, they knew how to be in tune, 
but not with each other. <laughs> right? They tuned yeah. up their, you know, boo -doo, boo -doo, boo -doo, but it didn't match. So they started playing the songs. Rhonda, you froze your dog. Now I'll call you a fat hog. Rhonda, you stupid bitch. You got that feminine itch. So, yeah, we did that that one afternoon, and that was pretty much like, <laughs> I, you know, no, I, you know, I don't think so. But then Rob, like, you know, the relapse thing happened. Yeah, we played quite a few shows with them, as I recall. So, yeah, they were pretty good, actually. And I was surprised. Because I was expecting to hear from Rhonda again when Relapse started playing, but and yeah, no, I was, uh, yeah, it was, it, it, and it's, uh, it, another one was Ricochet. Ricochet was another band that we'd play with, you know, and that was like I says. It, it I think really it, it when we popped through is when more hardcore of the way I think what hardcore is right. Mm -hmm. started popping through more right and i think when i think the difference between hardcore and punk is really the lyrical content too is what the songs are about if it's just about you know partying and you know like i said the drink beer crowd versus hardcore which had a little bit more social you know social commentary maybe not so political but a lot more a lot less about just partying you know yeah no I, I definitely i feel that like i feel like there's so many kind of conflicting forces at work in in punk broadly speaking including hardcore where there's sure reality versus fantasy and and party versus sobriety and art school versus street rock and roll like it's all kind of like taking bits and pieces of this thing to make different sounds that come out of this genre. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's not to take anything away from the escapism of punk, right? Cause I think that's what punk is is more, more of an escape where the hardcore to me is facing that shit, right? Facing mm -hmm. the, you know, that's the way I kind of always, I guess, uh, you know, one guy who really, really uh, was choke, you know, when I recall one time yelling out there, he was like, oh, we're looking for a place to stay. I was like, yeah, I'd let you stay at my place, but my my, my, my mom doesn't like punk rockers. And he went into it like a diatribe, you know, like, we're not punk, you know, do, do I got purple hair? Am I wearing lipstick? You know, and he was like, and he and and then he elaborated on that in uh, one of the sold out interviews uh, later on. You know, and on how he felt about that whole thing. So, mm. uh, and that always made a lot of sense to me too. And that's like, yeah, okay, I get it now, right? There's a, there's a difference, you know. I find it interesting. I didn't even know this till today, and I would have asked him about this before. But my friend Ron from uh well i guess necros but more recently easy action sings backups on your lp too wow i completely forgot about that yeah now ron is a great cat man ron Best. ron pretty much 
um, is the is the reason why Justin Starr was able to play the bass, right? Because Justin watched Ronnie and learned from Ron. You know, learned because uh, Ron was a big guy with chords, right? He'd strum those chords on the bass, and that's something that uh, that Justin, you know, like to mimic is is Ron's. Uh, yeah, I just saw Ron a couple weeks ago there at the uh, Negative Approach Suicide Machine show. Yeah, good old Ron. Yeah, that guy, he's a beast. My favorite thing that he's done in Detroit music was that Scheme and No Goods album. Well, I don't even know this. Ooh, Scheme and No Goods. That was um, the John Speck of uh, like the Generals, the Fags. Uh, uh, horse, right? So Scheme and No Goods was uh, John Speck, uh, Chuck Burns from Seduce fame, and he was also in Heresy back in the day, uh, Speedball, and Ron on the bass. It's a three-piece, and let me tell you, you don't need a fucking uh, rhythm guitar player when you got Ron on the bass. Yeah. Yeah, but that's definitely still one of my favorite Detroit records. Is that's uh, Scheme and No Goods. So, were Big Chief a band that you were fans of? Like, how did you meet Ron? Just from the scene, I guess. Ron was uh, Joe Starr's best friend. Okay, right. They they worked together. I think that that uh, they were in another band back in the day called Vibratory Synod, which was pretty just avant garde kind of. You know, it's pretty weird shit. <laughs> I think uh, Zappa was a big influence on what they were doing. Right? So, yeah, Ron was uh, yeah, good guy. Sure yeah. do like Ron. Yeah. yeah. And and later joined Laughing Hyenas or played with Laughing Hyenas. Yeah, um, that to me was unfortunate because the Laughing Hyenas were that lineup was the lineup. What Jim Kimball, Kevin, that those four, you know, when Ron and I think it was Todd Swallow, right on drums, on at that point, it just wasn't quite the same band. Mm. You know, it just it just it, it it certainly didn't scratch my itch anymore. How did you guys start working with Nemesis for the LP? Um. I think they just called us up. I think they found us somehow, right? And that was, uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't even really have an answer for that question. My memory fails me. Were you guys uh, like had you toured out to California at that point? Like, there was so much trouble trying to get shows anywhere at that point, right? All the, all the. Uh, you know, all the good DIY clubs, all the good punk clubs were kind of disappearing. Like, I um, don't know too much about what was going on out west, but like out east, like the Anthrax Club in Connecticut, that was done. The Safari in D.C. was done. Um, CBs uh, were actually supposed to play what was supposed to be their last um, the last hardcore matinee, which was... Uh, supposed to open for Murphy's Law then, but that's when uh, Pizzerati was uh, 
afflicted with the multiple sclerosis and we had to can that show. But it seems like all the good places that, you know, just a half a year before that, everything was kind of shrinking and it was really hard to get a show and we didn't have any kind of man. We didn't have anybody helping us with booking and everything. I was pretty much trying to do everything on my own. And I just did not really have the context to do that. Um, the nemesis, uh, when the record was coming out, um, they had booked us a, uh, a California tour and pretty much like two weeks before I was supposed to leave for it, it fell apart. So we had never got out to the West Coast at all. You guys must have played up here, though, right? Because in Toronto? No. The the the, the only time – we played a bunch of Windsor shows. Okay. But, I, yeah, we never got up to Toronto. That's so interesting because your records were – I think it's because of Toronto's proximity, obviously, to Windsor and then to Detroit – uh, your records were here as a kid. Like I'd find your records, like people like Pipple was beloved and a storied band. Like, I feel like Toronto has a lot more affinity with Detroit hardcore than New York hardcore, really, just because those records were around here a lot more. Like I, the ricochet seven inches and all that stuff was here. And Jill Heath, um, did lone wolf records and had a lot of yeah, yeah. sold out connection so she destroyed the just born i remember finding all that stuff up here and just cause right. all that yeah no yeah jill was a yeah that's uh her relationship with auto and you know and and everything probably helped us get up there but like um we played probably in windsor a lot more than we even played in detroit right and i think that's probably you know how it kind of got up there right mm -hmm. I'm always surprised to find out that it got as wide as it did for as little as we really ever, you know, really played in the States or in Canada at all. Because we really, you know, in, it, it was difficult getting, you know, the out-of-town shows once things started changing to more big venues and shit more professional venues. Yeah. I guess it speaks to that power of that network and why sold out fanzine was so important is the fact that this did spread the legend of your band. So even if you couldn't tour places, people you know Nemesis Records knew about you. I in Toronto, yeah. 10 years later, six years later, was able to find your, or five years later, was able to find your records because yeah. wow. the word did spread. Yeah, that's yeah, that's surprising to me. I think it's also how important this music is. Like, it's not, it's never going to be Kiss. We're never going to be selling gold records or platinum records, but it's the ripples that these records have and the impact that 907 inches, 1,007 inches can have around the world. <laughs> yeah, no shit, yeah. Yeah, and even with all the earlier stuff here from Detroit, right, how... Oh, it's still so big for something that was so small. It's yeah. become so big, right? Like how NA is still touring, you know, and still able to go anywhere they want to, and still people want to see them for something that was 
so small. I mean, how many of those seven inches were originally around, you know? Well, but it's also, you know, the power of uh, bootleg cassettes off of those, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, speaking of bootlegs, a label which is fairly controversial, but you had a quite an extended relationship with is Lost and Found Records, which some people have come on the show and and complained about their records being released without their permission or, and then other people have talked about how important that label was for them to be on. Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts on lost and found is. Yeah. I mean, uh, what a fucking scammer. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, just a fucking scammer. <laughs> right. I mean, it was, you know, it was, <sighs> You know, we got to tour all over Europe because of them. But in the same way, they just uh, they took what they wanted to and did what they want. You know, um, I had uh, after I came home off our last tour out there in 95, maybe about a year later, I was coming out of a Chinese restaurant and this guy was like, oh, hey, Mikey, hey, that live album sounds great. And I'm like, what live album? I had no idea. So I went to the record store and I had to purchase my own album. Right? <laughs> I call yeah. the guy, no returns. Of like, send me something. Do you know at least? And then he uh, got a hold of uh, some unreleased tracks and pressed a seven inch, right? That had some things that I really didn't want ever to come out. Right? They just were old. Just Cause songs, right? That were that well originally the first seven inch was supposed to be um a five song twelve inch and uh didn't have the cash for it. And there were three songs on there, what, once, and lunch hour. Lunch hour appears on uh the very worst of that was released by Disconnected Records. I don't mind that song so much being out there. Those other two were not something that I was really particularly proud of and that I ever wanted to really see the light of day. And then all of a sudden, ah, you know, how did he get that? I don't even know. Mm -hmm. right? But just did things without, you know, like I says, without even knowing about it, right? I understand that he tried to do the same thing with Sick of It All putting out the live album and uh, they came into when they were on tour and they, they were in Hamburg and uh, they came to his record store and kind of fucked things up a little bit there. So, and I think that story is true. I think I remember talking to Lou about it, but uh, again, who knows how my memory really works anymore like hardcore is a place where there that does happen like it's it, people take advantage of bands and and the the records and and bootlegs and it's just i guess it's the uh that weird insecurity sense of ownership thing rearing its head again or i don't know why people do it because like you're saying you didn't want those songs out there necessarily or certainly I and mean, i don't own. really mind the live album being out there I would have just liked to get a copy that I didn't have to buy myself. Yeah. You know, I, I, if he would have said, Hey, we're going to do it. I was like, do it. I mean, I was, 
never expecting to get paid for anything. I would have not been doing hardcore if I wanted to get paid for something. You know, if I wanted to get paid for my music, I would have done something that sucked. You know. know, So the money, you know, that never motivated me. I just wanted shit. Send me a few copies, goddammit. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh you guys did tour Germany though. Was how different was that versus touring in North America or playing North America for you? Uh yeah, that was um that was uh it was a trip. Yeah, it was um Yeah. How was it different? Well, like I guess you said like you you dealt with those kids that at that one show, the militant yeah. kids. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, I, you know, things are the same everywhere, really. You know, there's, I mean, it was, you know, other than the language, right? Um, I would say there was very, almost, you know, no real difference. You know, there was, uh, there's some weirdo uh, that brought us home after the show and then sent his old lady out to fuck us all, right? <laughs> That was really strange. She come out in a tent. I'm laying there. And we're all laying in one room, right? And there's uh, a skylight right above me, right? And she comes out in a little teddy and crouches over my face, opening and closing. Like, do you like it like this? Open and then crouch down close to my face. Do you like it? And I'm just like shocked. It's like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, uh, so apparently the week before when Sheer Terror were in town, they all gangbanged her. Oh right. <laughs> that was, you know, and, and it's like, I got a, I got a woman with a baby in her at home. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't know how much I would have been down for a gangbang anyway. I think I'm a little too modest for that. <laughs> but so that was a creepy, you know, that was something different right but one thing is too is the further east because that was 93 the you know the walls have only been down for a short time the further east we went the crowds were so much bigger and so much more appreciative right because they'd been you know i guess they didn't have much of what was coming out that way by then you know so yeah the the crowd Crowds were bigger, more appreciative. I remember the Prague show was, I mean, we were absolute rock stars that night. It was something like beyond what I expected anywhere. Uh, The Italian shows were really interesting because they really didn't get any of of the records over there. There was no good distribution between Germany and Italy at that point. Uh, we show up to one show, and the uh, the poster said said the pith ball, p i t h b a l l, and there was a picture of a guy playing bass singing into a microphone, and that was us, <laughs> right? So nobody knew us, but this was in uh, this was in Bologna. It was at uh, man, those commies in. Uh, in Italy really had their shit together. It was not like the German communist squats that were pretty much dirty, uh, really filthy, 
pretty much lazy people who just were communists because they didn't want to do anything. Where we got down Italian communists and they were, wow, organized. And and it was like this uh, this place we played was like a city block inside. And there was a radio station working out of it. They had a commissary and, and the band shell was like half open air in the back and there was a bazaar going on the whole time and there was probably a good eight nine hundred people at the show and and um the matriarch did not like us he was up at the front and you know giving me this and 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 everybody in the crowd was like oh as a tent nobody was like reacting to us and this woman and she threw her motorcycle helmet at me Holy and I was shit. like, what did I do to this person, right? Why? Because I'm mean and angry, you know? And uh, I threw the motorcycle helmet back at her. Not at her, but at her feet. And then the promoter came out on stage and grabbed me. He says, no, 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 you don't know who that is. You can't do this. It was, everything was going very poorly. And... Um, the opening band, our opening, our support act, Rikers, came out because it was our uh, Rich White, our guitar player's birthday, um, started throwing confetti and started screaming happy birthday. And everything changed. The show became one of the best shows on the entire tour. Everybody was happy. The energy just changed on the dime. Still, that was one of my greatest victories ever, <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, this has been unbelievable, Mikey. And anytime you want to come back on this podcast, you're always welcome because I've had, uh, I've, you've answered a lot of my long seated questions that I've, I've hoped to ask you one day. Yeah, right on. I'm just, uh, I'm bummed out. I wasn't able to actually come up there and see you in person. Cause I was looking forward to coming up there. So. Maybe I'll schedule a little trip up there sometime soon. Well, next time I play Detroit, you better believe I'm going to find you, and we're gonna we're gonna smoke a bowl together. Well, I I prefer doobies, but. <laughs>